0: Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we uh, do come before you and ask that your Holy Spirit would do his work in our hearts this morning and in these children's hearts, that you would remind us today that we are holy and completely dependent on you. We need you to come and open our eyes and ears and hearts to receive the truth of your word. We need you to change us and transform us into the image of your Son, We need Jesus this morning, so pray that you would direct us towards him in every sort of way and direct these children toward him in every sort of way this morning. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a good time, kids. Uh, Young Christians, teenage theologians. Have you ever had something that you like to boast about? Now, maybe it was a pair of new shoes. You wanted everyone to see them, to notice that you were wearing these shoes. It might be something as simple as a haircut, like you want people to notice. Not just you, but sometimes your parents want people to notice when they've gotten a haircut. When they do something new about their appearance... I remember when I was uh, a kid, um, I was probably 14 or 15, and we did a Thanksgiving prayer and we went around the circle doing the thing we had to do every year about what we were thankful for, and I said I was thankful for my athleticism. That was my Thanksgiving prayer. It was a boast. It wasn't really a Thanksgiving thing. Now, I thought it was in my mind, but I was really also humble, bragging a bit. Why do we boast about things? Why do we want someone to notice something about us, a way that we've changed, something that we have, a way we think about the world? We post it, we humble brag. There's a funny website that tracks on Twitter all the humble brags. I s- just stepped on in gum. Who spits gum on a red carpet? I'm wearing a ponytail. I just roll out of bed from a nap, and guys are still hitting on me like, really? I just did something very self- selfless, but more importantly, it was genuine, and I know it means a lot to the person. Hashtag, so worth it. Like, have you ever wanted to merit, earn praise, and admiration by showing your merits? Like, I'm worth worthy of your love and affection because, I mean, look at me. In your world, the story is... You must achieve your identity. And so in order for that identity to be fully achieved, it must be validated by others, your friends, people out there in the world. You must work then to create and craft an identity that others can see so you can earn their merits, their favor, their praise. We all do it. We all virtue signal when we feel our ideas are special or more thoughtful than someone else. We humble brag about bad things about us. We boast about our accomplishments and the places that we've been. Why do we do that? I want you to listen in the sermon today for how, why we do that and how God doesn't work the way that we do. Listen for how God merits favor and talk to your parents. Ask them what they like to boast about. Ask them to go over the list of accomplishments they are most proud about. And if they, say you, uh, if they try to humble brag you, which they might, ask them how they think this merits them things with you, with others, or with God. With that, let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Hear God's word from Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness." Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had walked before he was circumcised. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Michael Sandel has a book entitled The Tyranny of Merit. The book is a critique of individualism that has permeated our life, public life, especially since the early 80s and probably before. And Sandel's focus here was, is when he makes this statement, to regard oneself as self-made and self-sufficient. This picture of the self exerts a powerful attraction because it seems on the face of it to be empowering. We can make it on our own. We can make it if we try. It's a certain picture of freedom, but it's flawed. It leads to a competitive market um, meritocracy that deepens our divides and corrodes our solidarity. When I read this, I thought of Malcolm Gladwell's excellent book called Outliers. In one sense, Gladwell tackles this idea of American exceptionalism, that one can truly pick themselves up by their proverbial bootstraps and make themselves something out of nothing. That has been an American story, a vision that has captured our imaginations, and it's deeply formative for us. Gladwell says we have fallen in love with this notion of a self-made man or woman, of a rags-to-riches story, of the idea that if you make it to the top of your profession or world, you deserve a salary, glory, honor for getting to the top. Why shouldn't you be richly rewarded? And that idea and the ethos has permeated virtually everything, every way in which we think about achievement. And Gladwell says, I think that the idea is completely false. It's worse than false. It's dangerous. In the book, Gladwell looks at a smattering of successful people and teams and groups and displays how in every case there were outliers, a convergence of many things that in the end contributed to make this person, this group, to make their success possible. For Gladwell, identity is never achieved by the self-made man. There is always, he discovered, a given aspect, an outlier, a place of grace, a place of undeserved favor. Now our imaginations too are shaped by stories of hard work and merit. ways to earn what it is we receive, of achieving identity. It is good morality. It is the way things ought to be. You work hard and you receive. And if there is an outlier of grace, it's just that, an outlier. It got us in, but we must keep ourselves in. We must do the work, We might have got a break here or there, but to stay in, we had to keep working. Paul enters into this very real human situation. And today we're going to look at this text in four ways. Number one, Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. Number two, he was justified prior to the work of circumcision. Number three, thus he is the father of faith. And number four, we should walk in the faith footsteps Of Abraham. Number one, Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. We see this in verses one through eight. The text starts with a question. What shall we say about our forefather Abraham? What was gained by him in the flesh? What, in other words, are his merits? Doesn't he have reason to boast? Is his identity as the father of Israel achieved or received? Now, the merits of Abraham are many. Abraham, in the rabbinical tradition of Jesus and Paul's day, Abraham was thought to be justified by doing the law. He was thought to be made right with God, to have a right standing with God based on himself keeping the works of the law. Now, Abraham is the most important figure up to this time in all of Judaism. He was a hero, worshipped, in the midst of an idolatrous people he worshiped god in this culture that was anti god it's like stories of for us of celebrities who in the midst of their great temptations are won over to christ and they become somewhat um, iconic figures for us of faith basically because of where they're placed abraham was such a hero he was called out of Ur, out of a group of moon worshipers, into a culture of people who worshiped a pantheon of gods, and he was faithful to the one true God. And for his worship, he is a hero. He isn't just a hero, he's a prototype. He's a prototype of what Israel is called to be. He is a legend. His grave became a place honored as a holy place. He was believed to be one who obeyed God's commandments post being given the covenant perfectly. He embodied righteousness. He was, as Psalm 1 says, a tree planted by waters that bore its fruit in due season. Its leaf did not wither. And the legend of his righteousness grew to sinlessness. He merited righteousness in the covenant because in response to the covenant, he was sinless. Listen to this passage from one of the writings of Paul's day that was preached and used by the rabbis of Paul's day. Abraham, the father of a multitude of nations, suffered no blemish to his honor and had no equal in glory. He observed the commandments of the Most High and entered into a covenant with him. God was near to him in his flesh and faithful to him in his temptations. Therefore, God swore a firm oath with him that in his offspring he would bless the nations and that their possession would stretch from sea to sea from the river of Euphrates to the ends of the earth. And what did this faithfulness merit for Abraham? Isaiah 41.8 says he was called a friend of God. He was seen to be a helper for salvation to all generations. This is why the Jews were proud to be known as children of Abraham, why they appealed to Abraham as their forefather. This is their family name. This is O'Doyle's rule, if you know the reference. I use it here a lot, by the way. Billy Madison, O'Doyle's rule. That was their family identity. Abraham was in whom they received their identity, and they earned it by being like him. He was their patriarch. He conveyed honor and glory to them. He is the OG, the goat. He, according to the rabbis, had reason to boast. He merited favor. Now, God certainly rescued him and gave him grace, but Abraham worked with grace to merit what he received. And if merited, he could then boast. For if Abraham, Paul says, was justified by works, he has something to boast about. The rabbis taught that God's favor had been a reward to Abraham for his observance of the law, even before it had been given. A common proof text for this was Genesis 26, 4-5, which says that God would give the patriarch the blessing of numerous descendants and lands because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. (coughs) But Paul says Abraham wasn't righteous and wasn't meritorious before God. But what does Scripture say? Verse 3 For what does it say? Abraham believed God, and that's what merited him righteousness. Genesis 15, 6, Romans 4, 9, and 22, Galatians 3, 6. Scripture says the merit, the way he was credited, was not all the things that he did, not all his works, but faith. Paul says Abraham believed and it was credited. Abraham didn't do anything. He didn't work. The contemporaries of Paul understood, believed as an act of faithfulness and was itself a meritorious work. Paul says faith is trust in God and is not a work. Abraham repeatedly found himself in a place called to trust, even when the only thing he could see was his circumstances that challenged that trust. And we'll talk more about that next week, but here... Abraham believed, and this belief was not always consistent or in full. Think about Hagar. Think about him with his wife in Egypt. There were ways that Abraham tried to cooperate with the promise and move it along. It wasn't that he didn't trust the promises, but he felt like he had to do something to enact the promises. Now, I want you to hold on to that thought, because I think we think the same thing. That there are things that we must do to enact God's promises. We'll come back to that later. Now, stop here for a second and consider Abraham's achievements. He did forsake the civilized world of Ur to be a wandering nomad in a land he did not know that was not his home Canaan. His journey was long and perilous. He had great many herds and servants and victories in battle. He intercedes for the city of Sodom. He is willing to sacrifice his beloved son to a largely unknown God. All of these things are remarkable, and if this was the story, his identity would seem to be achieved versus received. But worthy and noble as these things were, they were of no consequence in realizing God's promise. You see all Abraham had was trust. There was nothing he could do to make the promise happen but receive it with faith. Edwards, a commentator, says, Abraham stood before the awful choice of trusting in in the credibility of God despite the howling evidence to the contrary. His faith was not a work, not a virtue, not an expression of the heroic will, but a surrender in weakness. A surrender to powerlessness in the face of overwhelming opposition to the sovereign word of God. Ernst Caseman, the theologian, says faith is itself a form of poverty. In faith, the believer must wait for blessing. It's a place where the creator alone can and will act. John Calvin says faith is deriving from another what is wanting or absent in oneself. Faith is an attitude of receiving, of surrender. I can't do, I can't earn, I can't merit. Abraham believed, and it was reckoned or imputed. This is a divine passive, which means God alone is the one who did the work. He credited to Abraham righteousness. And righteousness wasn't Abraham's dues, like you owe me, because he didn't work for it. It was a gift, Now, Paul confirms this in verses 4 to 8. He gives this lesson in logic. When one works, compensation is calculated. Jed just got a job uh, a couple weeks ago, and he's been working almost two weeks. And pay period is coming up tomorrow, and we're all still waiting to see what his first check will be. He's been told what his hourly rate is, but we don't know how the tips will be allocated out. How much will he merit in wages and tips for the work that he's done? Paul says works credit obligations of wage. But in verse 5, he says that trust is the actual thing that credits the wage of righteousness. So what is in the merit line of Abraham? The merits of gift. Here, Paul quotes Psalm 32, a psalm of David. Blessedness and sins are contrasted. The merit line is gift. It's always gift, ever gift, forever gift. In the merit line of our lives, of David's life, of Abraham's life, of our life, of Paul's life, the merit line is always gift. It is righteousness apart from works of the law. It is forgiveness of sins, though we don't earn it. Faith is counted as righteousness, Paul says. Lawless deeds are covered. Sins are forgiven. The Lord won't count our sins against us. And there's also this in there in verse 5. God justifies the wicked. Edwards, the commentator, says, The phrase posed an utter contradiction for Paul's Jewish contemporaries. In Judaism, God justifies only those within the covenant, whereas the wicked stand outside the covenant and thus outside the possibility of salvation. To acquit or much less justify the ungodly was abhorrent to the morally conscientious Jew. Paul, however, understood wickedness or ungodliness could also be rendered far more radically than Judaism. He argues for it in verses in chapter 3, 9 to 20. Not just the morally reprobate, not just Gentiles, but all humanity stands under sin. Ungodliness is the description of the human condition. And that condition indeed included Abraham. As Paul has trumpeted throughout this passage, no one is righteous. No one. Righteousness does not have any human origin. It is an attribute to God alone. So for Abraham to have it, he must receive it as gift. For Israel to have it, they must receive it as gift. For us to have it, we must receive it as gift. The Lord did not set his affections on you and choose you because you are numerous, Moses says in Deuteronomy 7, but because he loved you. There is no account that says you deserve this. Martin Luther says God did not accept a person on account of his work, but the works on account of the person and the person before the works. It's all gift and it's all received by faith we have an alien work of righteousness as we talked about last week this is the death and resurrection of jesus what enacted this righteousness into our world jesus stood in our place and transmuted his life for our life his death for our death his righteousness for our unrighteousness he did this to give us to god So don't miss what Paul is saying. Abraham believed God's promises and it was credit to him. He was made righteous by believing that God would do what he said he would do and he had no other way to bring it about. We too believe in the same way. There is no way for us to be given back to God to be vindicated in all our unrighteousness. There's no way to be put back together again. There's no way for all that has been broken and lost in the fall to be somehow regathered for us. There's no way for us to walk with God in the cool of the day. We are resigned to death, to sin, to the tyranny of the devil, unless God acts, unless God saves, unless God buys us back and redeems us. We could try... And we do because we're all merit hounds. We crave merit. We despise demerit. It starts in the home. From the minute we are born, we crave merit from our parents. As they look down at us with love and affection, as they see us, as they look down on us when we don't do the right things, when we cry a lot or are fussy, when they look down on us and kind of like despise that part of us, we are learning the value of merit and demerit. And then we're sent off to school where we earn gold stars for all the good things that we do, and we earn demerit for all the bad things that we do. And then we realize that our friendships, if we are good friends or run with a crowd of friends in a certain sort of way, then we earn their love and their affection and we earn merit with our friends. And then we buy a certain car because we think that car is cool. And we think by driving that car or having that car, it earns us merit in our world of people with other cars. Or in sports, when we achieve on the field, what we achieve on the field and when we don't achieve and we're benched by the coaches we quickly learn merit and demerit and then we're sent off to college and very quickly everything about the world on the college campus exposes us to the need for more merit How do we earn it? In the face of our contemporaries and peers, in the face of my professor who doesn't believe the gospel, how do I, as a Christian, earn merit in his eyes? It's all about merit. And then we look for a spouse, and in our relationship with our spouse, we crave their merited affection. We want to earn the affection more than we want the affection to be given, because if we earn it, then we've merited something. And we do it with our neighbors, And we do it with strangers who don't even know it, like people in lines at grocery store. We want to merit good thoughts from them about who we are. We want to earn and be worthy of our identity. Every project, every paper, every party we throw, our portfolios and our futures are dedicated to earning merit and not demerit. And we get frantic and manic and depressed if our merits on the ledger don't quite exceed our demerits. And on top of all of that, we want to boast. We want to boast about the things we've earned merited for with everyone and anyone who will hear. And it is right there in these places of loss and struggle and failure and demerit after demerit that there we can only receive the merits of Christ. It is in those places where we see, I can't do it, I can't measure up, that we are opened to Christ's merits on our behalf. There's one more objection, however, that remains for Paul. Psalm 32 is true, but the thought was it applies to Israel alone. There was a midrash written on Psalm 32. will, Will God cleanse any nation? No. Only Israel does God forgive. Abraham and David were forgiven and made righteous because they are Israel. So point two, Paul argues Abraham was justified prior to any work including circumcision. Paul here is arguing that the gift of grace is not for Israel alone. He asks in verse 9, is this blessedness, this forgiveness, this gift for the circumcised and also for the uncircumcised? What are the circumstances that Abraham was made righteous? Was it through circumcision or prior to it? Now the answer, God credits to Abraham righteousness before he was circumcised. Abraham was circumcised, by the way, at the age of 99. Paul is forcefully arguing that Abraham was blessed before. Before he had a son of promise, before he was a Jew by the cultic practice of circumcision, and if before a Jew he was a Jew, then he can justify, then while we are sinners, God can justify Gentiles. If before Abraham was actually a Jew through the cultic rite of circumcision he was justified Paul says and just like Abraham we Gentiles who are still sinners God can justify. Edward says God promises to Abraham were not a reward for his obedience For God called Abraham and promised him land, progeny, and blessing before he obeyed. It was God's word alone which created and determined Abraham's existence and to which he relinquished himself by a commitment of trust. And so circumcision is a sign of righteousness received, not a cause of it. And so Paul emphasizes here the giver of the sign. God gives grace prior... To trusting or any other work. It is a sign of God's grace that you are moved in faith to trust. And baptism is also such a sign. It comes to the unworthy and it comes as promise. And so, Point three, Abraham is father of Jew and Gentile because both require faith, verses 11 and 12. Abraham is our forefather in the faith. Abraham was reckoned righteousness by faith and not by circumcision. Abraham was the father of Gentile believers before he was the father of Jewish believers, for he was the father of all who believe but not have not been circumcised before he was the father of the covenant. His becoming forefather of the Jews was a subsequent specification of an original fatherhood of all who believe, namely Gentiles. Thus, both Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians, in that order, may appeal to Abraham as their father. There's not one way for Jews to be saved then, and another way for Gentiles to be saved. All have the same prototype, Abraham and faith that is given as a gift. And so justification by faith is grounded by which we are all made right with God. Just like Abraham, we are called to walk in the footsteps of faith. And that's point four. How do we do that? A lot of this comes from a conversation with Kyle Strobel. I think there is a rub for us when we think about justification and sanctification in our spiritual formation. In our self help culture, we think habit and disciplines are the things that we must do in order to grow. And so scripture becomes another habit or discipline to help us grow. So we develop plans and goals to grow. We open our Bibles and read them and expect something to happen. We expect to have some emotional connection to the text or have it emotionally connect to our life. And so we search for it. And if it doesn't come, we try to create it. We want to feel this. It's why worship music has become such a formative thing for us in our individualistic therapeutic culture. We want to feel our faith. I'm not criticizing that desire. It's real. We are fully embodied human beings. Our emotions should inform us and should help us to know God. That's all true. But we so want to see growth and feel it that we'll do everything in our effort to have it. To get us into the right spaces and the right frame of minds, so that we might receive it, liturgies of various stripes just become another thing that we do, driven by our preferences. Right? Like we all have preferences for how worship should be, how church should be. So, driven by those preferences, we place ourselves in places so we might feel our faith and grow. And as as young believers, that's kind of how it happens. Like we we experience something of God at a camp, and then we come home and we read our Bible for the first time, and then some, something happens. We feel feel that thing but as we mature that changes what do we do when that changes our temptation is always to then find church and find church in a way that we like the preferences that we have the things that we want to hear, our presuppositions, our tribal impulses. The goal of our works of faith is then to be justified or feel justified. We believe, we think we're saved, we're un- we understand justification by faith by having the right answers about justification or the right theology. Does your understanding of justification show up in your prayer life? You pray. And your praying life becomes an attempt to somehow atone for your sins. Like we do it, we go to prayer because we we feel this need to or have to to please a God who's disappointed in us for our lack of prayer. And we expect that our prayer life in some fashion will merit God's favor by answering those prayers. And when we feel all of this, we're tempted to despair. But the Apostle John reminds us in 1 John 3, God is greater than your heart. He knows everything about you. He knows this impulse in you to even use prayer and worship as a way to justify yourself. And yet God is greater than your heart. What you need to know this morning is we stand before Christ and we are faithful to him as person, not to the law. And our growth in grace must be understood, as Abraham understood it, to be relational, dependent on God, dependent on Christ, to grow in grace, it is a gift. Our life of faith is received. How do you talk about yourself? When you haven't changed, what do you say to and about yourself when you are honest with yourself in the middle of the night? When you're trying to grow and you just can't seem to grow? How do you speak to yourself? That is a revelatory of what you think and believe about justification. I know for me, I like to banter myself and hammer myself. And that shows I don't believe that God alone justifies me. We aren't in control or in the driver's seat, and that is good news. The good news starts out as bad news. If you try to save your life, you will lose it. If you try to advance your spiritual life in your own power you or in your flesh, you lose. We think God wants to use us in our strengths, in our gifts, but his power is made perfect in weakness. Luther said, it's a marvelous thing to teach Christians to ignore the law and live before God as though there were no law whatsoever. That's what we quoted in the Heidelberg before the sermon. He gives us the free gift of Jesus' perfection. He imputes to us full obedience of Jesus. What does it mean to let justification sink into your heart? What will change when you experience what Abraham experienced when you appropriate justification into your life? Now, grace is not opposed to effort, but to meriting effort, to earning effort. We start and receive the gift that, that is Christ. He is received, and we, in reception of him, walk out in newness of life, clinging to the fact that we are united to Christ, so much so that our lives are hidden with Christ in God, Paul says. So, what does this mean for us? Just a couple quick things as we end. This means justification by faith, as Abraham experienced, and walking in the footsteps of Abraham brings freedom. You are free, friends from having to achieve your identity apart from Christ. You are free from having to achieve your identity even in this place. Even as you sing worship songs and feel compelled to raise your hands and know that people might notice you raising your hands, and that might feel good when people notice you raising your hands, you are free from achieving your identity as the good Christian. You are free from achieving your identity as the bad Christian. You are free. And you can be honest. Repentance is the pattern. The Christian life is one of continual repentance, says Luther. How does justification bring this? Well, apart from appropriating the righteousness of Jesus by faith, we can't really look at our sin honestly. It's too threatening for us. If we are living for being justified and earning our identity with neighbor, spouse, even ourselves, to look honestly at our sin is too threatening. In fact, we have a stake in not seeing it. We benefit by not being honest. But when the righteousness of Christ is credited freely to my account, it frees me to be completely honest about my struggles with sin and not be crushed by them because Jesus was crushed in our place. This is the way of weakness, it's the way we engage by faith in the trust of justification. You can be honest because you're worse than you think and more loved than you can imagine. You can be honest because you're free. You can repent because God already sees you as a non-sinner and there's nothing that will ever change them. Jesus is seated in the heavenly places. Jesus has torn the temple veil. Christ has died. Your status is secure. So own up to your sin and repent. What a joy it is to be able to repent and rest, then, in that weak, surrendered position of the righteousness of Jesus by faith. So, what should you repent of today? Pride? Lying? Greed? Gossip? Say to God, to your community, to your group, to your spouse, this is what I've done. This is who I am. I say this so I can rest in the righteousness of Jesus, which covers all my sin and counts me as perfectly righteous. Friends, our posture towards the other, whoever the other is, is not justifications and defense either online or in person, whenever we're confronted, our posture is repentance. Our posture also is not towards deconstruction, even if that's very popular for us. Like, we're confronted by all the ways that people in the church fail us. And the temptation in these moments is to rest your justification in those people and deconstruct of the faith, from the faith, because they have failed you. And that is a great and grievous sin to experience trauma at the hands of those who use the name Christ. However, Jesus will do enough deconstruction if you entrust yourself fully to him, and that will be enough. You have been given, friends, to Jesus, and he gives himself to us. And even the Bible, if you sit down to read it apart from Christ, kills. The letter kills, but the letter and spirit give life. The end of our goal, of our activity, the end of Abraham's journey is Jesus. And as we abide in Jesus, we bear fruit. But abiding in Christ means we go where Christ goes, a place of weakness and powerlessness, a surrender that in Christ I die and in Christ I am raised. Weakness and loss and powerlessness are places of grace. And so we come here on Sundays to receive the means of grace, and it's a passive thing where we receive communion, the preached word, where forgiveness is a pr- pronounced and identity is received. You can't habituate the spiritual life. It is received as we abide in Christ. And when we mechanize our disciplines or our liturgy, like using them for merits of grace, we don't get Christ. We're putting confidence in the flesh. But the spiritual life is infused with the posture of reception, and we work out our salvation in fear and trembling in reception. So, how is my capacity to patience? Hear this. How is my capacity to patience being informed by love? How is my ability to listen being informed by love? We don't create a life in our power, but we descend in the truth, seeing the neediness of my soul, my desperation, so that I might embrace an alien righteousness that only comes in Christ. I do a deep dive into myself, only to discover that I am needy for Jesus. Hans van Baltazar, the Catholic theologian, says, there was no amount of soul-searching that the Simon could have done to discover Peter. Like for Simon, to do the deep dive in himself alone, he would quickly see he is not the rock upon which God would build the church. It had to be announced over him. Salvation had to occur outside of him in Christ. Our culture rages against this and that and counter-literacies about how power comes, about the therapeutic human discovering identities and achieving them. These are all false shepherds. God is leading you to weakness so that you might understand his power. And a deep awareness is what is needed. Abraham had to come to the end of all his efforts and realize and see by faith that the promise depend not on anything he could do. And God sends Jesus, like Abraham, into the desert place of weakness. Paul gets called up into the third heaven, and in response, God sends a messenger of Satan so that he would know that Christ's power is perfected in weakness. John Owen says, we pray, take my sin away, take my sin away. Why would God take our sin away when the sin guides us back to God? And if he took our sin away, we would not be guided back to God. So I end with this. Our only boast, according to Martin Lloyd-Jones, is God. The Christian is the one who glories in the cross. He does not merely say that he admires it. He does not merely accept its message intellectually. He rejoices in it. The word the apostle actually uses here is a very strong one. He says, God forbid that I should boast, save in the cross of Christ. It is a matter of boasting. It means that to him, there is nothing which comes anywhere near in its significance. It means that he rests everything upon this. That this means all to him. That he is what he is because of this and this. Hello. Let's pray. God, help us. We are formed by merit, our imaginations, and everything around us. And you say we can't merit what you give. We must surrender in faith to something outside of us. So I pray that we would do that. And I pray that our spiritual formation would look like that. For your power is perfected in our weakness. We ask all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.